the wilderness is an interesting place. Um, it was a, a Wednesday afternoon. Uh, it was actually, it was a Wednesday morning. And um, it was my very first panic attack. Um, I couldn't get my mind um, to stop racing, no matter how ch- hard I focused my thoughts. I couldn't get my, uh, my heart to slow down, no matter how many deep breaths that I took. And, and the panic and anxiety... It, if you've ever been in the ocean before, it felt like the waves were hitting you and you're swimming as fast as you can towards the shore, but it doesn't matter. The waves just keep crashing and crashing and crashing. Um, and I know we joke about that with pictures like this, uh, but it isn't that funny and it's far more real. And um, a few hours later, I, I came back down and I was due to make dinner that night. And my wife said, I think that we're going to go to a restaurant tonight. And uh, so we went there, and I tried so hard to be present with her and our kids and to be patient because your kids are always so much better behaved in a restaurant than they are at home. <laughs> Not really. And, uh, and we were finishing up the meal, and she said, why don't you just go out for a while, and you come out when you're ready to come home. And so I found a, a corner in a coffee shop with an extra dry cappuccino and my journal, and um, 15 or 20 pages later, the world felt clearer. It didn't feel like the problem was gone because it was still there the next morning when I woke up. Uh, and, and the anxiety came and went in the days to come. Um, but that sense of, of paralyzing panic, I had passed through. And, um, and, that was, and that was my first time. I go, oh, this is what this feels like. I've heard some people describe what it's like to be panicked before. And, um, and the pictures just don't represent it. It's just a very different experience. If you've been there, you know that's like... And for some of us, the panic is the function of a circumstance. And for others of us, it's just, it's our life. And as I was thinking about that experience recently, I stumbled on somebody whose life seemed so much harder than that. His name was Nicholas Herman, and he was born in the late 1500s, early 1600s in Europe. He was, he was completely poor and destitute, and at that point, there was no upward mobility. There was no Indeed.com. There was no job finders. He was stuck as a household servant poor would always be poor. And he was walking along the road one day and he looked up in the winter and he saw a barren tree. And Nicholas had seen barren trees in Europe in winters for his whole life. But something about this particular tree struck him. And he began to think about it and just look at it. And while he was looking at a tree not that different from this one, a thought came to him. He said, this tree is barren right now. But in a few months, it's going to have leaves. And that simple thought led him to this reality, that if God cares so much about this barren tree to bring leaves on it, how much more does God care about me? And Nicholas is the first person I've ever heard of who was converted by staring at a tree. He would go on to leave his household servant job and enter a monastery where he would serve as a dishwasher and a cook for the rest of his life, using that time that he spent in manual labor to pray and devote himself to building a relationship with God. And when he died, his friends found his journals. And like friends often do, they say, hey, there's something here. And so his friends published his journals because Nicholas couldn't, you know, protest. And he became known to the world by the name they knew him in the monastery. Nicholas Herman's name is also Brother Lawrence. 
And his book that was published was entitled The Practice of the Presence of God. And over the last 400 years, many people believe that it is the second most read book behind the Bible in the whole world. The work of a man who was uneducated, illiterate, and who had no idea the impact his words would make after he was gone. But as I was reflecting this week on Nicholas's story with that tree and my first panic attack, three questions just seemed to hang in my mind. So I think they're the three questions that we ask when we're in a place like that. And they are, does God see me? Does God care? And can God do anything about my situation? I don't know where you are on the faith spectrum today. I don't know if you're here checking out church for the first time or the first time in a long time and you're like, I'm not sure I believe or maybe this is your 1,000th Sunday in a row being in a church or somewhere in between. But I think every single human person has wrestled with these questions. Does God see me? Does God care? And can God do anything about my situation? And it's these questions that are at the heart of this series we're beginning today called In the Wilderness. Because when you end up in the wilderness, those are the questions that begin to bubble up inside of you. Those are the questions that you wrestle with. And I want to make sure that when we use the word wilderness, we're on the same page. So I've created a definition. If you have a handout in your bulletin, I've put it there so you don't have to write it down. The wilderness is a place or a set of circumstances where people are subjected to forces that test them and often make them change, usually instigated without their input or active choosing. Translation, most of us don't choose the wilderness. And wilderness becomes a a kind of umbrella category for a lot of other topics. And I made a little word cloud here. It's an umbrella for topics like grief and bankruptcy and anxiety and cynicism and disillusionment and depression and loss and illness and emotional health and mental health and being stuck. And I could go on, but it's only one slide. There's only so many words you can fit in there. And I thought about calling this series How to Overcome Your Mental and Emotional Health Issues, but I wanted you to come. So I called it In the Wilderness instead. Because I think a lot of us, when we're forced to deal with these things or we think about living in a situation that's like wilderness, our knee-jerk reaction is just to run away. To hit the eject button and and panic and go, get me out of here as fast as I can. And some of you, you're going to be tempted with that because this is a three-week series. And so if we have half the attendance next week, I'll know why. But I want to encourage you that, that the temptation to run Let it wash over you and then consider a different path. In one of his his poems, the famous poet Robert Frost said that he says the best way is always through. And I agree to that or in so far as I can see no way out but through. Friends, the way out of the wilderness is through the wilderness. The way out is the way through. And some of you in this series are going to discover that, that you actually were in the wilderness before and it wasn't that God was done with you. It's that you were done with the wilderness. 
and you missed out on what God had there because you didn't go through it, you ran away from it. And the reason why the way out is the way through is our big idea today, that the wilderness contains what we want and need, even though it doesn't always appear that way. That's why the way is through, because this experience that so often includes pain and angst and anxiety and panic and struggle, and it's difficult, on the surface, we see all those things. If you dig through the packaging and you dig through the emotions and you dig through the feelings, what you find is that in the wilderness is the gift, is the outcome that you've been wanting and needing all along. But like a gift that looks nothing like its package or a book that is nothing like its cover, the wilderness often deceives us because all we see is the appearance. So today, what I'd like to do is lay the foundation for this series by talking about four fundamentals of the wilderness. And then next week and in two weeks, we'll walk through two people in the scripture stories who went through the wilderness in detail and see what we can see for our own experience. So here's the first fundamental of the wilderness. The wilderness means you're normal and not alone. You're normal if you're in the wilderness. Now you might go, man, I'm the only one who goes through this. Why am I the only one who has hard stuff happen to me? Why are they always experiencing the good life? Friends, the wilderness is not the exception to the rule. The wilderness is the rule. And we have a term in our culture and it's, uh, it's called an open secret. And an open secret is something that is, it's, it's, it's out there if you look hard enough, but most people don't know it. It's not a hidden secret. It's not classified information. It's out there if you'll just, you know, explore it. And the open secret of the Bible is that every person that God uses, every person that has a relationship with God, every person that, that God calls and has a purpose for their life, they go through the wilderness. I'm just going to give you a short summary here of some, some names. Abraham and Sarah, you know, the father, you know, Abraham, I won't do the hand motions for you because I forgot them, but father Abraham, he leaves Ur of the Chaldees in Genesis 12. And God says, I'm going to take you to a place that you don't know yet, but I will show you the way. And what is the way? It's through the wilderness. Joseph has got his best life now. He's got a great coat of many colors. He's the favorite son of his father and his brothers sell him into slavery. And where does the path go? It goes through the wilderness to Egypt. Moses, who we'll talk about in more detail next week. Moses has a great life in Egypt for 40 years. And then what happens? He flees Egypt and goes to the wilderness for 40 years. The Israelites, where do they wander for 40 years? In the wilderness. King David, he shows up to, to defeat Goliath. And what does he say? For the last 10 years, I have been battling lions and bears and protecting my sheep in the wilderness. Elijah, the great prophet, we'll talk about him on the third week. He has multiple experiences where in the wilderness he experiences and encounters God. Mary and Joseph have baby Jesus. And then what happens? Herod wants to kill Jesus. What do they do? They flee through the wilderness. And even the apostle Paul has his conversion in Acts 9. And he goes for multiple years to the Arabian desert. No Jafar, no Aladdin, but he goes to the desert. He goes to the wilderness. And these are just the ones I thought I'd time to share with you today. 
You're not that different from them. And if God didn't spare them from the wilderness, why would he spare you? And it isn't that he spared them or you. It's that sometimes God sent them into the wilderness. In Mark 1, it says after the baptism of Jesus that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Some of you think that it's the decision of some person who has your ill intent at heart that you're in the wilderness. And could it be that you are in the wilderness because God drove you there? God led you there. Could it be that God is doing something in your wilderness, in the situation that you want to get out of, that you want to end? I've had the privilege of being mentored by some great people. And one of those people is a guy named Maxie Birch. He's the reason that our son is named Maxwell. We named him after him. And in speaking about wilderness, my friend Maxie calls it desert seasons. He says, desert seasons are signs that God takes you seriously. Because God took Abraham seriously, right? God took Moses seriously, right? God took Elijah his own son, the apostle Paul, King David. And if he took them seriously enough to lead them into the wilderness, to do something unique in them and through them that would have ramifications for the future, when you end up in the wilderness, it is a sign that God takes you seriously too. Desert means that you're normal. I know you're excited to hear that today, (laughs) but it means that you're normal. Number two, the wilderness is an opportunity, not a curse. And it doesn't feel like that sometimes. Sometimes the wilderness feels like this great curse that God has dropped on us, and it's this terrible thing that is to be uh, pushed away and overcome. And yet when we read the Bible, and not just the sections we like, that are our favorite sections. But we read the whole thing, we find that it's an opportunity. You know, there's a section in the Bible that I think most of us don't hang out in. We, we like the Psalms. We, we know Genesis. We like stuff about Jesus. But in the middle there, there's a dusty section in your Bible called the Minor Prophets. Eventually we'll do a series on the Minor Prophets because it's, it's, it's dusty, but it's, it's good. And one of those minor prophets, and they're not, they're not called minor because they're unimportant. They're called minor because it's a translation of the word lesser. They're shorter than the major prophets. One of those minor prophets is a guy named Hosea. Now Hosea hears from God that he is to go out and marry a woman named Gomer, which in that day was a popular name for women. Not so much today. <laughs> Most of us, when we hear Gomer, we think pile. But Gomer's a female name, in case you were wondering. And Gomer's well-known in the area Hosea lives because she's a prostitute. And God tells Hosea to go marry Gomer because Gomer is the living symbol of the people of Israel, unable to be faithful. And he says, Hosea, go marry Gomer because I'm going to show my people what it's like to experience my love even when they're not faithful to me. And in Hosea 2.14, God speaks to Hosea and he tells him what he's going to do with his people. 
And he says, therefore, behold, I will allure her, Israel. I will bring her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. Now, most of us, who, by the way, we're all unfaithful. And if you think you're faithful, you're lying to yourself. If you were faithful, Jesus didn't have to come. You should be up here telling everybody else what to do because you're perfect. But if you were unfaithful and you knew it and you heard that God was going to bring you into the wilderness, most of us would finish the sentence, he will bring him or her into the wilderness and he will speak anger, condemnation, judgment. What's wrong with you? What were you thinking? You should be ashamed of yourself. Most of us, if we were in a moment of unfaithfulness and we were invited by God into the wilderness, we would not expect the word tenderly. And yet the wilderness is an opportunity to hear God speak to you tenderly. And if that's a difficult idea for you, I want to challenge you that your idea of the voice of God has not been shaped by this, It's been shaped by a person. Your image of God may be the image of your dad. Maybe the image of a spiritual leader in your life who was an imperfect or abusive example. The scriptures tell us that when God invites us to the wilderness, he doesn't do it to browbeat us because we already know how broken and messed up we are. He invites us there to speak to us tenderly. My friend Maxie, again, in talking about desert seasons, he says, desert seasons are God's timely answer to our prayer for intimacy and transformation, but in our experience, the desert may seem anything but an answer to prayer. 40 days ago, we started 2020. And many of us had a resolution to grow closer to God, to have a better relationship with him, to be stronger in our faith. What if God has answered that prayer for you? And if the answer is wilderness. You go, Scott, that's not a good answer. I know, it's hard. But who are you to tell God how he gets to answer your prayers? And it is what we want and what we desperately need. But it doesn't appear that way. Why? Because it's painful. Wilderness seasons, if there's a one word for it, it's painful. But here's what we mistake about pain. Pain isn't a curse. Pain is change. If you've ever gone through pain in your life, you know that it's not easy especially the change that you didn't choose or ask for yourself. And yet, the only way to change is to go through the pain. In his book, Leadership Pain, Samuel Chand lays out this set of equations. Chand says that growth equals change and change equals pain, therefore growth equals pain. He says your capacity to grow as a person is equal to your capacity to endure pain. His book wasn't a bestseller because nobody likes that message. 
but I'm trying to help you. And if you will not experience or endure pain, you will never go further than you are right now. You will short circuit the path and plans of God if you can't endure pain. Think about the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 12, God, take this thorn. No, 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 I'm not taking the thorn. You're going to go on grace and weakness, not strength, Paul. And that's me today. I'm praying my voice lasts for another 14 minutes. God said, hey, you're going to give this message on grace and weakness. In his book, A Hero with a Thousand Faces, the famous book, Joseph Campbell says, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. And it is that place of pain and that place that you're afraid that is the exact place God wants to lead you in and through. If you will go through it. It's an invitation. It's an opportunity. Number three, we encounter God in the wilderness. We think that the wilderness is the place that is barren and absent of God. Even our front cover with the person walking through the wilderness, you get the idea that it's just them alone. No, the wilderness is normal for followers of Jesus and it is where we encounter God. And that's the story of another overlooked person in the Bible, a woman named Hagar. Again, not a popular name for women today. But if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis 16 is often known for what we learn about the man who will be named Abraham, he's now Abram, and the woman who will be named Sarah, who's now named Sarai. But in this story, I want you to look at not their experience, but Hagar's experience. And I stumbled on this a couple weeks ago. Somebody, I was reading, a commentator pointed this out, and I haven't been able to get what I learned from this passage out of my mind. In Genesis 16, 1, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. If you were here for our Flawed Family series back this, this past fall, you'll remember that in that series, we talked about Abraham and Sarah went down to Egypt. Abraham said that Sarah was his sister. They got a whole mess of trouble. Well, then they escape, they get out of that, and the, the Egyptian pharaoh gives Sarah a gift, a servant named Hagar. That's where she comes from. And in Genesis 16, 2, it says, Now Sarah said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham says, Okay. (laughs) That's Scott's living translation. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, Hagar looked with contempt on her mistress. Now, what you have to understand when you read the Bible, especially when you're reading these kind of sections, is that the Bible is not giving you prescription. The Bible is giving you description. The Bible isn't saying, hey, if you can't have kids, give your servant to your husband, it will all work out. 
The Bible is also not saying that it's good that you can give one person to another as a slave. Let's make that really clear. But you have this woman named Hagar, who's an Egyptian in a Hebrew culture, wrong skin color. She's a woman, wrong gender if you want to have power, and a servant, wrong role if you want to be looked after and considered. And so I don't think it's good that when Hagar gets pregnant, she looks at Sarai with contempt. But as we'll learn later, Sarai is not an easy person to live with, much less work for. And she begins to feel some sense of pride. Well, Sarai sees the contempt and she makes Hagar's life miserable. And so Hagar runs away. We pick up her story in verse seven. It says, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Let me be really clear. In this section, we're not seeing an endorsement to send someone back into an abusive environment. Again, this is description, not prescription. In this world, if you were a runaway slave and you were found, you would be killed. No questions asked. Running away from your master was a capital crime. Jesus is saving the life of her and the life of her child. But he's not done. He says, return. And the angel continues, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. Fun in the King James. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over and against all his kinsmen. And so Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. In this passage, we see that, that God is saying to her, I'm going to multiply your offspring, which in that day was a, a sign of blessing. We live in a culture now where, where children are not a blessing, they're a curse. Just get on a plane for five hours. I have three. I'll just tell you how we get, it looks we get on planes. But in that day, if you were given more children, it was a blessing. And so when God says, I'm multiplying your offspring, he's saying, I'm blessing you. Then, then he says, name your child Ishmael, which literally means God hears. And the third thing is the most profound. This is the first time, because the Bible's only 16 chapters in, this is the very first time someone names God. And the name Hagar gives God is El Roy, the God who sees me. The first person to name God is not Abraham or Noah or Moses. It's an Egyptian female servant, an outsider. And she says, you are the God who sees me. I said that every time you're in the wilderness, you ask three questions. Does God see me? Does God care? And can God do anything about my situation? Hagar says, God you are the God who sees me. I'm going to name my son Ishmael because you are the God who hears me. 
and I'm going to go on to have more children because you are the God who's promised to bless me. This is why we cannot run from the wilderness. Because if we run from the wilderness, we run from an encounter with God. And what our soul most desperately wants and needs shows up in something that doesn't appear like an answer to our prayers. So I don't know if you're in the wilderness today or not, but with all the strength that I have, and it's not a lot today, I implore you, don't run from the wilderness. Go through the wilderness because you have no idea what God has in store for you there. Fourth fundamental, the wilderness invites our questions and it creates space to hear answers. When you're in the wilderness, you finally get the space to begin voicing those questions that have been bubbling up within you and you finally have enough space and quiet to hear God answer those questions. As, as followers of Jesus in the 21st century, I think the mistake that we've made with Jesus is we've focused so much on what he's done for us and his divinity and his miraculous power that we have forgotten the fact that he is the prototype for what it means to be human. And one of the things that if you read the gospels you see with Jesus is that Jesus is not Spock. Jesus has a range of emotions. He feels them all. In John chapter two, Jesus shows up at the very beginning of his public life and in anger, he clears the temple. He turns over tables because he's offended by what they've done to God's house. In John eleven thirty five, 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, it says that Jesus weeps. So men, the next time one of your friends say that men don't cry, you say, no, Jesus didn't. He's the best of us. In Matthew 23, it says Jesus laments as he looks at Jerusalem because he wants to do for Jerusalem what Jerusalem won't let him do for him, and it breaks his heart. And then in Luke 22, 45, Jesus has his anxiety attack. He's so anxious that his capillaries in his head split and his blood mixes with his sweat and he sweats drops of blood. So the next time you're anxious and you feel like God doesn't know what that's like, Luke twenty-two forty-five. Anxiety is not a new problem. Your savior faced it. And that's why Jesus gives us this picture that, that the wilderness is a place that brings up all of these emotions within us. And we have a temptation with all of our might that we want to press it down and suppress it and squish it down and go, I don't need emotions. I don't need feelings. I just need to focus on what I believe is true. Well, Jesus didn't do that. He took all of our emotions and said, you can express these and still not sin. And if Jesus allowed those to bubble up in us, then shouldn't we do the same too? I, I've read till my eyes hurt to get ready for this series because you guys deserve that. And in one of the books that I read on, um, on Moses, and I'll talk more about this next week, Ruth Haley Barton says, in fact, to try to press on without paying attention to whatever is bubbling up from way down deep is the most dangerous thing we could 
Maybe the most dangerous thing you could do is run from the wilderness, but the second most dangerous thing is while you're in there to try to push all that stuff down. To compartmentalize it, to ignore it, to pretend it's not real. And the wilderness is an invitation with God to give voice to that, to express that, even if it comes out messy. And if that's true, here's the question I have for you. What does your soul want to say to God today? If you were really honest and you knew you weren't going to be judged or rejected, if you knew that you were truly safe and if he would hear, what does your soul want to say to God And until you're ready to express that and give voice to that and share that, I'm not sure you're going to be able to go on and grow with him because there's a level of honesty and authenticity you're unwilling to have. Newsflash, he already knows. And he doesn't need to hear it. You need to say it. It's not for him, it's for you. Because we will only grow in our relationship with God as we are honest and authentic. And the wilderness offers us that opportunity to get that relationship we want or need through that kind of authenticity. So, before we close today, I wanna give you some next steps to begin to process this before next week. If you'll come back. And the first one is this. You need to locate yourself. When you locate yourself, what you're doing is you're essentially putting a name on what you're experiencing and where you are. And for me, that day that I had that panic attack, I had anxiety before, but I never had panic. And when I finally realized what it was, There was so much grounding and comfort and peace that came with that. It wasn't like the situation was peaceful. It was still anxiety-inducing. But I knew what it was. It's like when you're struggling with something and somebody goes, oh, oh, yeah, that's this. Oh, people have that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's really easy to fix. Okay, I feel so much better now. So so locate yourself and go, man, this, this is wilderness. This is depression. This is anxiety. This is loneliness. And naming it gives you some sense of grounding. See, for me, when I named where I was feeling and locating where I was, I felt grounded and the next steps became clearer. I didn't put easier, but it became clearer to then see how I could move forward. Locate yourself. Number two, understand your posture. So if you are in wilderness, then understand your posture towards it. Are you the kind of person who always runs from those things? Are you the kind of person who shrinks in those things? Are you the kind of person who just loves those things? Weirdo. I'm just joking. I'm glad, I'm glad somebody does. And I would say, if you're not in wilderness, that is totally okay. But two things. One, you probably will face a wilderness in the future. So maybe learn now for then. Or two, maybe you were in the wilderness before 
and it wasn't finished. Not because God wasn't done, but because you were uncomfortable. Number three, listen to your soul. We live in a world where we have never been more connected to each other and never more disconnected from ourselves. Many of us, because of social media, could tell what's going on in the lives of a hundred people around us. But what's going on in your soul? And there is a reason why, at the same time, we are experiencing the longest longevity, the highest quality of life, and at the same time, the highest rates of mental, emotional disorders, challenges, problems. Why is it that the world seems to be getting better and better and we seem to be getting worse and worse? It's not a problem that a new phone or a new car or a new job can fix. These are soul issues. So listen to your soul. And then number four, seek God. If God is in the wilderness and if God meets us in the wilderness, then when we get there, we have an opportunity to seek him. And you're lucky. Did you know that? You actually have it easier than many people because you live surrounded by wilderness. So this week, with shoes on, not barefoot, I just chose the picture because it was cool, I want to encourage you to go out in the wilderness and go for a walk. Now, I know some of us, myself included, feel naked without this thing. So put it in your pocket, but turn it off. And go with somebody, but don't go with me. I'm the worst hiking friend. I'll just talk your ear off the whole time, you know? My wife hates hiking with me. She's like, just shut up, we're walking. Um, But go into the wilderness and the place where it's quiet and allow those things to bubble up. Allow your heart and your life to be quiet enough for you to actually hear. Because that's what prayer at its core is. Friends, what if prayer is just paying attention with God? I didn't say paying attention to God. I said paying attention with God. And as those things bubble up and you feel them, don't press them down, but allow them to come up and have a conversation about them with God. Because God is present with you in your wilderness, whether you feel like it or not, and he has a purpose for your wilderness. That's the hope. So he said, Scott, where's the hope in this message? The hope is, is that this is on purpose. In Deuteronomy, Moses is about to die. They've come out of the wilderness. And he says to the people, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you for sure. And he let you hunger and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The wilderness will reveal all of the ways and places we have looked for satisfaction other than God. And it will show us that those things truly don't satisfy. 
And it will strip away all of those dependencies we've had until we are naked before God. And we discover that only he meets our needs. Only he satisfies our wants. Only he is the one that we need. He meets us in the wilderness. Would you stand and pray with me this morning? Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.